edit, editing was my skill through film school. So after film school, I moved out to California with my wife. We knew absolutely nobody out there. We didn't have any contacts or any jobs. And while I was seeking for directing jobs, I made a living as an editor cutting trailers. And so that's always just been a very enjoyable thing for me. That wasn't your question. Uh, your question was the logistics. The voice you just heard belongs to Garrett Batty. Uh, yeah, my name is Garrett Batty. I live in Utah with my wife and four children. Um, by profession, I'm a writer, director, producer of independent film. And because it's independent, I do a lot of work that supports that profession. Um, a lot of corporate uh, commercials or documentary style things as well. Who met with me over Zoom in the social distancing of 2020 to talk about how screenwriting, directing, and editing intersect for this independent filmmaker of many hats. And to get into the details of the filmmaking editor's work, I'm your host, Liz Christensen, and it's all in the telling. Welcome to episode 49 with my guest, Garrett Batty, the filmmaker behind the Saratov Approach, Freetown, Out of Liberty, and more. I saw on your IMDb that you are editing show-off. Yeah, I got my start in editing and uh, have a lot of friends that, that have their own shows. And so BYU TV did a series called Show-Offs, and it's a kind of an improv series. And that is also my background as, a, as an improv performer. And so they came and said, hey, will you cut a couple of seasons of this series, which is fun. I, I, I love that stuff. It's so fun. When you're editing a TV show, do you get that like as a package of show or package of season? Like how much, how much do they dump at you and then you start editing at a time? Show-offs is a unique series because it's all improv and they can shoot the entire series, you know, in a matter of five nights. You know, they'll shoot two episodes a night. Um, and so I think over the course of three weeks, they shot two seasons worth. And I was fortunate enough that they said, can you edit these two seasons? So it was uh, 20 episodes of show-offs that I was able to kind of really immerse myself in and edit for about four or five months. That sounds like just, a, a that sounds overwhelming to me. You know the saying like, um, you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It certainly was. And uh, no, we were fortunate that First of all, those guys are so talented. Uh, you know, Jake Van Wagner and, and McLean Nelson are, uh, you know, two of my dear friends and extremely talented improvisers. So the show itself it was the editing was basically me taking, you know, an hour and a half of content per episode and cutting it down to the 28 minute episode. And there were about nine to 12 cameras uh, each episode and a couple trained on the on the audience as well. And so the, the edit wasn't too uh, drastic, but yes, the amount of content in four months, five months of editing, you're right, it was an elephant. It was a mountain that we uh, slowly dug away at. When you're editing something like that, where there's improvised content, how, what kind of guidelines or framework, do they script after the fact so you know exactly what they want from you or are you kind of crafting as you go? Yeah, it's uh, I'm crafting as I go. I mean, they, those those guys are very very skilled. So they usually have a a story beginning, middle, and end. Because ultimately, the nature of any television show is you want a, a beginning, middle, and end. You want a story. And so even in an improvised format, you know, they they might shoot for an hour and a half, telling a full kind of length 
narrative story. But uh, I, I do think one of the one of the reasons they came to me is because I do feel like I have a grasp on story on on beginning, middle, and end, and so they knew that they would get that. So yes, there's it's part writing, part kind of creating. Say, look, who are the main characters of this improv, and what kind of beats can we form out of this story? But ultimately, yes, it's whittling down what they've given and kind of writing and editing at the same time. But I want to ask you a lot about how those things intersect and overlap and everything. But before we do, will you kind of categorize them separately for me and tell me, like, as a film writer, what you would do and as a film director, uh, what you would do and a producer and an editor so that before we weave them, we kind of understand how maybe other people have them as separate jobs. <laughs> That's what's unique for about sure. you. You're doing all of them. Yeah, for sure. And I've, I've been fortunate to be able to have those separate jobs on shows where I'm not, where I'm only one of those three. I've had the opportunity to be all three. And so, yeah, it is easy to identify, hey, here are the separations of that. And I mean, ultimately, the way that I've been taught and, and feel like I've applied what I've been taught is that there are three tellings of a story, right? There's your the, the initial writing, which is just pen to paper, the guy behind a keyboard, girl behind the keyboard, telling that story. And then ultimately that gets passed off to the director who gets to try to visualize that story and say, okay, we're going to take what they wrote and use every tool possible to visualize it for an audience. And then ultimately uh, the director finishes with that and passes it to the editor and the editor has both versions as the script and the directed content. And the editor would then tell his, tell that version of the story that, you know, take the best visualization and make it match the best script. Um, so ultimately that's the third telling of the story. Very, very rare is it the case that what is written on the page, you know, word for word, is the final deliverable. It's like the game of telephone, right? You, the writer says something, and by the end, the writer might recognize what they said. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of makes the editor sound like an arbiter, um, like helping the script and the director kind of meet at the end into something that makes sense. I think so. Hopefully everybody's on the same page. I mean, ideally the director is doing it, his best to serve what the writer has written. And so it, I, I don't think there would be any um, benefit for a director to come and say, great script writer, but you're wrong in telling your story. This is how I'm going to do it. Um, so, and I think all three, you know, all three of these roles should be on the same page. And fortunately there is collaboration. And so, you know, the writer is often on set. Uh, working with the director, the director saying, "Hey, what's your take on this? Or how did you know? I want to make sure I understand and convey and portray this the way you intended it to be." And then they can be on the same page. And then same, the director then it sits with the editor as well. And so the director saying, "This is what I'm trying to do here. This is how we accomplished that." And the editor can say, "Great, this I feel like it's it is working or it isn't working, and here's some options to really make it work." So nobody is ultimately like r running with their own take of it, saying something contradictory to what the previous storyteller is saying. That's okay. got to make things really efficient and easy for you when you're all three of those people in some way. Yes, it sure does. The risk is not having those collaborative minds to say, hey, this is a confusing concept or what you're trying to do here isn't really doing what you think it's doing. Um, so sometimes that those roles really help each other to improve, you know, in an independent world where I'm the writer, director, and editor, 
Um, sometimes it'll take another outside voice to say, normally that's my wife saying, uh, Garrett, I don't think that that's really working the way you think it's working. <laughs> Does she, is she kind of a sounding board for you in all three of those phases? Very much so. Yeah, she's very involved. And uh, whether, I mean, she certainly is very, very, very helpful and collaborative and supportive in that. When you're writing, oh, I have so many questions about that. Maybe I want to back up a little bit. How do you know you want to write it? Like, where, where do you decide, like, this is a movie I'm going to make? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. And I've done, I've done several projects where it's just a writer for hire. Maybe somebody will come to me with an idea and say, hey, we, we'd like to hire you to write this story. And certainly, um, if their concept resonates with me, that's an exciting thing to be able to write and deliver a script and be done with it. There are those times, and I think any writer can relate to, where there's a story or an experience that, that feels like it just comes from within. Just say, this is a story that I'm willing to live with for the next three or four years. I'm going to start writing it. I think in, in many cases, those are the, the movies that I will start to write and then end up directing and, and ultimately editing. The, the stories that uh, wake you up in the middle of the night and, and don't let you go back to bed. You said three to four years. If I look at your IMDb, Saratov Approach is 2013, Freetown's 2015, Extinct is 2017, Out of Liberty's 2019. Like there's this every other year pattern. Is that intentional or circumstantial? That's for me just totally circumstantial. That's uh, that it takes me a while to, to do a project, I guess, is what that's evidence of. I'm slow at what I do. And so I'll take a year to write. And then a certain amount of time to raise the money and, and get interest and get people interested in it. And then uh, one, you know, by the time that takes place, it's about a year and a half before the movie is out and uh, people are aware of it. And so, yeah, it might say 2013 for Saratov, but the script probably started in 2011. Are there things that you do for yourself as a writer when you know you're going to direct it that you do put in the script or don't put in the script because you know you're just passing it to yourself? Yes, there is, and it's limiting. And the, the writer-director flaw, I think, is I limit myself and say, okay, I know that as a director, I've got I've to put this on the screen. So I'm going to limit the amount of locations. I'm going to limit the amount of characters and stay very, very focused on the story. Um, whereas if somebody is coming, you know, like a BYU TV or a or an outside, you know, independent producer is saying, hey, can you write a film based on this story? Then it is much more liberating. And I can say, I don't have to direct it. You bet. I'll, I'll <laughs> go crazy. I'll write what I want to write. I hope to get to the point where, where that reverses, where I say, okay, I'm directing this. Therefore, I'll have the resources to really write what, what best serves the story and uh, sort of write more, more freely, write a little bit bigger than I typically have. Is that primarily a financial consideration, those resources? Yep, financial. Also, my audience at this point, uh, you know, I write, I think, f for them, uh, which again, could be a bad thing that I that, that's in my mind. It's like, what does the audience want to see? What does the audience want to see? How do I serve their expectations or their wants? I don't know if that's a good policy or not, but, the, but it certainly does affect my writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, I think it's working for you. And I really like that quote, um, and I'm going to butcher it, and I'm not going to be able to attribute it properly, but I think it's Albert Einstein who says there's no creativity without constraints. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think that there's truth in that. I think there is. What do you do as a director for yourself to make your editing easier? 
Boy, that's a great question. I do a disservice, I think, to the to to me as an editor. The director side of me just does a disservice because we might have extra long takes or series takes on set where we're saying, okay, go again without cutting, without setting up the the marker or anything like that. And um, the crew, everybody kind of gets in a a flow because they we know that there's not going to be a lot lost in translation from the set to post-production. And so it's probably a little bit of a disservice where if if an outside editor came in to put together a movie like Saratov, they might say, what is this? What is this messy footage or how do we do this? So as far as far as actually content-wise or creative-wise, um, I think I do shoot, when I know I'm editing, I'm very economical in what I shoot. Because I feel like I know what takes we're gonna get and I know the angles that we're gonna cut even on set. And so there, we don't waste a lot of time getting excessive coverage or shots that, that I feel like won't be needed in the, in the editing. Is that because you kind of see it or do you like uh, write it out? Like note it in your script, like this is definitely gonna be a close-up thing. This is gonna be a reverse, this is. No, I, I, do, I do see it. And in the script, I try not to write the script as if I'm, yeah, we, I wouldn't ever write shot direction in the script because I do, a lot of different people are reading the script and so they don't need to see editor notes or director notes. But one thing I do do in the script, I think as, that it affects as an editor is as I write, you know, each line of text I feel like is a is a shot, and I'll try to design it that way. Where even you know you've got your dialogue items, but even the action items, the mise en scène, you know, each period in my mind represents a cut, and so I can kind of say, okay, well, I'm not describing the shot. I'm not saying camera moves left and we show or character sees this and this. It's still very much an emotional description of what's happening on screen. But as the writer, and then later as the editor, I know, okay, the idea is that that's a shot, that's a shot, that's a, that's a shot. And so there is a little bit of codified uh, language there in the script for the editor. That makes a ton of sense to me how that would work with action. How do, do you give yourself, I don't know, I don't want to say hints, but like, how are you breaking it down in the dialogue? Like, how do you know when you're going to cut in dialogue? Or is that something that you're on set and you see what actors are doing and you're like, oh, I think I'm going to do this now? No, I, I, that would be more on set. I mean, for the dialogue, and I wouldn't ever want to uh, limit an actor's performance by saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to cut here. I'm going to know this. So I do try to get full coverage on the dialogue, um, you know, and give the actor their due. Uh, for that, but um, yeah, in in the blocking or planning of each shot, I feel like I have a good idea of when we're gonna cut and when we're gonna stay on the take. As an editor, are there times that your brain on set when you should be like fully focused directing, the, the editor part of you is like yelling something in your ear or saying, okay, but wait, consider this, because this is gonna suck for us later if we don't <laughs> take care of this now. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think that that is, I, I don't think that that's, let's see, only limited to uh, a, someone who's going to edit their own work. I mean, I think, again, a director should know, like, okay, we have to get some coverage. We have to provide whomever is editing with some inserts and cutaways and things like that that will really just build the world and enhance the scene. Uh, it's more for the audience, you know, rather than saying, hey, this is going to be really hard to edit, you know, the, the thought should be, 
it's really going to be hard for the audience to really be immersed in this world unless we get more coverage. I feel like I get what coverage is, but I've never had anyone like define coverage for me. And I feel like the way we're talking about it right now, it's um, I've had a limited perception perhaps of what coverage is. So on a logistical level, having a lot of footage from different angles of the story. I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, there might be a great textbook definition and I don't know that off the top of my head, but as, as we're saying, Hey, let's get some coverage or when I'm hoping to get coverage or as an editor, I'm looking for the coverage. Yes. If I, I've got your main shot as an, you know, if you're an actor giving your lines and I've got your main shot coming in, um, I'd love to see who's reacting, how showing the audience how to react to that shot, how to react to what you're saying. And so I'll get coverage of another character or something in the room that's influencing what you're feeling as, a, as an actor. It provides the editor something to cut to. And again, it provides the audience with a little bit of guidance of how they might feel or respond to what the actor is doing. Do you have like stylistic things that you do when you're editing or directing? Cause I, I feel like to separate them exclusively makes no sense right now, but, um, you like this kind of coverage just generally. So even if you don't have a plan for how you're going to use that, you know you want to get that because later that's going to like be one of your go-to things when you're editing. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just tried this on a shoot we did about a month ago for a, for a film that we're trying to put together. But uh, we scheduled in coverage shots. So we knew what the, we knew, you know, we'd need, the minimal amount of shots to cut to cover a scene, right? You need your master and then your medium and then your reverse out right, of the two people that are in the, in the scene, for example. Um, master, and, is that like the wide? That'd be the wide. Yep. You need your okay. wide shot. Um, you know, whatever, just show me the whole world on what's happening in the scene, right? Here's our two actors and they're dialoguing and we're just going to have a nice master. And then you'll have your, your coverage, which is your shot and your reverse shot. So now I need a, a medium close-up of my primary character. We'll get that, we'll cover her, and then we'll reverse and get the medium shot of the person to whom she might be speaking, right? And that's kind of our basic scene. And then in the schedule we built, we said, look, give me, Dr. Magipi, give me three shots that aren't about the actor or their scene. And so we were trying to get creative with some of these shots. We're like, okay, we're gonna show the little flickering flame lamp burning and then we're gonna um, we're gonna just do a full take of the actor's hands, like when she's delivering her dialogue. We're not gonna show her face or her mouth moving. We just want to see hands moving. And then we also would do a take of just full, like full, like silent reactions of, you know, somebody else in the in the room or whatever it was. And it was again on set. You're running through the scene, thinking, ah, this is a lot of excessive stuff. But then in post, and we say, okay, well, when we're looking at this big picture of this scene, we'll say, how do we get into this scene? Well, I'm going to use that shot of the close-up of the flame burning. It's going to kind of set a tone. And then I can cut to my actors and have them do their scene. And when there needs to be an emotional beat, I can cut to her hands or, um, you know, the response, uh, somebody not dialoguing, but listening. And I think it gives us a great opportunity to really adjust the pacing of the scene, to tighten it or, or spread it out a little bit, and hopefully let the audience 
feel what the actors want them to feel. Pacing was totally the word that came to my mind when you said like a beat and then cutting away. When you were talking about into the scene, I mean, that's both an artistic and a logistical thing that you mean, right? Like, what's the first shot of the scene? Yeah, what was the first shot of the scene? Uh, how does the audience introduce to, uh, to the scene? Uh, you know, at what point are they given the information that needs to happen in this scene? And um, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's what I'm at. <laughs> So it sounds like even as an editor for yourself, you're making discoveries in post about how you want that to work sometimes. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Uh, because there are a lot of different elements uh, that you're working with. I mean, there is the director who's, you know, giving you these shots, but certainly the editor is looking at, I mean, the director too in post, but we're looking at a lot of different elements um, that on the day when you're, you know, the, the term is in, on the day that we shot, we're not building the entire story. We're shooting out of sequence. We're shooting different elements. Um, in the editing, that's the first time that you're actually seeing this full arc in its like narrative order. And there are opportunities to build and construct a scene that might be a little bit different, that hopefully is a little bit better than what was shot on the day. Do you ever say to yourself, dang it, Garrett, like if we'd only have seen this while we were on set, we could have done more of that or we could have caught that from a different Angle or yes, and even further. I mean, I'll say, Cal, if I only had written this differently, you know, this this location isn't right anymore for this scene. You know, it could be so much more powerful. Or um, I'll say, ah, why didn't I direct this character to be this level of emotion rather than over here? But but I think that's a good thing. I think that's the nature of the story evolving, and you are telling a better version of the story each time. And so hopefully, hopefully those disappointment or moments of like clarity maybe um don't you know i guess they they give me an opportunity to say hey on the next one i'll try to be more aware of these things but hopefully that always happens i i think if you go okay that's exactly what i envisioned when i wrote it then i don't think your director or your editor did their job well enough I like that. I, uh, that kind of reminds me, though, of some fine artists I've talked to, where for them, it's kind of hard to, to decide exactly when to walk away from the canvas, like when they're done. Uh, you have that problem as an editor? Like, or is it just, yeah, I'm done. It's clear. It's obvious. I'm out of footage or, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, I think that that problem's a, a good one to have. And uh, what are they, what's the old saying that a film is never done, it's just escapes or whatever, you know, it's, it's release date happens, you know, and so that's when, that's when you know the film is done, when, when it's release date passes. And there, yeah, there's truth to that. I mean, I'll go back and watch like content that I've created and still think, oh, what if we were to tweak that or how does that work? And I think that that's a good thing because I'd rather be there than say, okay, I'm done with it. I just don't want to look at it again. Just let the audience interpret it. Why do you make films? That's a great question. It's something I have always, always wanted to do. Um, I mean, ever since a kid, that was what I knew I wanted to do, and that's never changed, and I didn't really give myself any other options through school or, or career. 
I think that that's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's a blessing because I didn't ever have to choose. Like uh, I just knew kind of what classes I'd sign up for and where I was going to move to after college. Um, the curse is it's a hard living often, but one for which I'm very grateful and uh, yeah, grateful to be able to do it. I want to ask you like nitty gritty style. How do you eat the elephant? Like, do you dump all this stuff into your program and then start sifting it out? Like what's the workflow process? For editing? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I love that. Uh, I, I love that process. As we're shooting, as I'm shooting a movie, I'll have an assistant take in the dailies and, uh, I use Final Cut Pro. I've used that for all of my films and trailers and anything, anytime I can cut on Final Cut, I do. It's a matter of being very, hopefully, very, very organized and knowing that, hey, we've got an assistant that's building out a, a folder for each day and then for each scene. And Let me ask you about that. So the dailies is everything that was shot that day and yes. they're just like labeling it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all the all the content that's on your marker, you know, when they say, okay, here's your marker, and it says the scene number, and the AC calls it out, or the loader calls it out, um, that all gets transferred to to the editing software. And so I can go back and say, okay, scene 12, I knew that I had eight different setups and a couple of takes of each setup, and they will be labeled as individual clips, uh, then with the audio synced. And the audio uh, these days is great because audio, if there are four characters, each character has a different lav mic on and the tracks are labeled with the character name on it. And so we know who to, you know, which mics to turn on in, in post. And so, yeah, I'll have a scene 13 or scene 12 with all of my takes and things labeled and hopefully a little assembly, like a, like a rough edit of any sort of usable takes. Um, so the person who's doing the dailies is taking out anything that is like, there's just no way we're ever going to use that. It's, there was like a plane or a whatever. They just. Yeah. Anything from like false takes to um, exactly the, the obvious. We're not going to use it. They'll make a bin. They'll make a collection of those clips as well. And say, Hey, this, these are garbage clips. But they uh, don't throw them away just in case. No. Yeah. We don't want to delete anything just in case, because I will, I'll pull from garbage clips, you know, say we need a, and insert, you know, the, there's sometimes a little magic moment uh, from the time the clapper claps and clears the frame, camera finds focus. There's a magic moment in there sometimes that where we're waiting for the settle and for the director to say action, where the actor is usually very, very authentic and very raw, waiting for that. And we'll we'll pull a lot of reactions from that moment. Yeah, so we don't we don't throw away anything. We mark it. That's really like, I feel like that's such a juicy tip in a way. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's probably a terrible tip. It's probably saying, hey, Garrett, don't use that stuff. We're not in character. But I love <laughs> that stuff. I love like the, I mean, yeah, credit to actors that, that are in character once that starts rolling because we do we take those moments. Okay. So after dailies and it's all organized, what's the next step? We'll put together a, a cut. I go through, you know, scene by scene. We build uh, the movie. And it is hideous. I call it the shame cut because <laughs> you don't want anybody to see it. You're completely ashamed that you directed this, this pile of garbage. And, you know, it's, if for a 100-minute movie, it's often a 150-minute shame cut. And you just say, oh, why am I even in this job? Please, nobody, 
see this and you have to kind of send it out to a few people and say, okay, what's working, what's not. And then, and you just show like your very, very trusted friends or the people that are legally married to you. Yeah. <laughs> people, people who are going to love you no matter what you create. That's right. The, the ones that have to love you, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. That is part of the process. Every show has that. I, I listen to a lot of directing podcasts and you get Martin Scorsese who's talking about his, the, his rough cuts and just even on his latest, greatest movies, he's talking about how he cannot believe that he thought that this story would work for an audience. And then we start whittling it down. We start saying, let's cut all the garbage out. Let's just cut, you know, what is the story? And sometimes you're rearranging scenes or, or not. Sometimes you're just tightening, tightening, tightening and whittling it down to 120 minutes and 110 minutes. Uh, you add some temp music, start to mix your audio a little bit and then hope slowly starts to become, you know, be restored in the project and go, okay, all right, maybe we can save this thing. Maybe we can at least save a little bit of it. <laughs> uh, um, you said temp music. So like just temporary music to throw in for mood or something. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just pull tracks from whatever soundtrack. I like to build a playlist while I'm writing of temp music and just say, Hey, here's influential music. This is the tone or the beat or the pace or the feel that I'm going for. And so I'll, I'll label whatever move, you know, when I was writing out of Liberty, I have an out of Liberty playlist and I'll share that with my composer as early as I can. And even he'll write some music and I'll put that in the temporary playlist. And so the, here's just kind of this thing. Um, I'll also share it with the actors and say, this is kind of the feel, this is what we're going for. Um, and sometimes that creates excitement and gets everybody on the same page of what we're trying to do. So yeah, I'll pull the temp music in and, and use that in the cut as well. Is that largely um, instrumental music? It can be. Um, I, right now I just did a uh, movie that's set in the time of Christ. It's kind of a first century AD movie. And we use Johnny Cash in our temp in our temp score. And I absolutely love it. We're trying to figure out how to use this song in real life, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it can be whatever, just whatever the feel of the movie is. So once it starts to like look better and hope happens <laughs> in, in editing, do you send it back out again or, or does it go from shame cut to mostly ready? It's, I think that it is good. I would do myself a better service if I sent it out more. I think that we should. I think that that's one of the, uh, that's a great tool that independent filmmakers or any filmmaker probably could always use is being able to send it out more. So yes, send out your cut and to, to, to trusted audiences or to honestly to uninformed audiences and say, here's, here's a movie, would you take a look at it? It's a tough thing to do because there is so much that happens to a movie from the time that the picture is locked, which means you're not gonna make any more edits to the time it actually looks like a movie. Uh, you go into sound mixing and color correction and real music, like actually the composed music uh, put in, the credits, the final graphics, every, uh, or VFX even. So all of that polish, all of that frosting isn't there when you have to lock pictures. So it's very, for me, it's very hard and humbling to show an audience the picture lock just because it doesn't feel like a movie. So I'm always very concerned that they, that the notes are going to come back. So it's like, 
you know, this just looks terrible. It looks independent and it looks, or it doesn't sound right. I can barely hear the dialogue or where's all the ambient noises. And <laughs> so you have to find an audience that can see past that and yet still kind of say, hey, here's where your story is lagging or here's where I'm not responding to what you're trying to do. You said an uninformed audience. Do you mean like uh, not insider, like not like movie makers? Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably a better term. But yeah, somebody who's unfamiliar, very unfamiliar with the project. Oh, okay, so like not your wife. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I've had test screenings with friends and family who don't, you know, they don't know about the project or even I'll reach out to my wife's friends. Hey, Sherry, can you, or can you bring over 20 people and ask them, beg them to come over for, you know, to, to watch this cut. It is so like nerve wracking, but it's such an important process. Uh, and it's important that we don't overlook that. What are your favorite stories to tell? I, I tend to gravitate towards true stories right now. I mean, that's kind of been my, I've been really interested in that type of thing. I, I, I'm not sure why, but, uh, but yeah, I, those have been my favorite so far. Can you share with us anything about what's to come for you or what you hope is to come for you? For, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I am hopeful to, I, I mean, to improve my craft. Um, I'd love to be able to reach a broader audience than what my previous films have, have reached. And so I need to figure out how to, how to do that. I think I need to, I'm hopeful to be able to learn from those who, who are succeeding in, in reaching a broader audience to steal some other ideas and, and uh, just keep improving. Do you have any like final parting words of advice for someone who might be starting out or encouragement for somebody who has a lot of elephants still to eat? Uh, boy, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I am in a position to give advice, um, I guess only to myself, and that is to keep, we just keep trying. I mean, the nature of being an independent filmmaker is it's, you know, nobody is asking you to do what you're doing. Essentially, I, I liken it often to uh, like, um, I'm like an independent chef. I'm asking people, like I'm creating a cake and nobody's asked me to do it. And it's not going to be more expensive or better than the professional <laughs> cakes that are made. And yet I'm asking them to come and, <laughs> take you know eat this dessert a lot of people don't even want dessert um and yet I'm, I'm trying to convince them to 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 enjoy this little kind of handful of cake uh so let's see <laughs> trying to figure trying to figure out how that's advice uh so yeah make the best cake you can i guess do your best work thank you to my guest garrett batty thank you so much garrett i really enjoyed talking with you about this today you're so kind. Thank you, Liz. It's so great to be able to chat with you. In the Telling is excitedly preparing for another Halloween special, one in which I'll be sharing ghost stories, scary stories, and Halloween jokes submitted by my listeners. You can share your joke or story with an audio file sent to inthetellingpodcast at gmail.com. Help more people find In the Telling by leaving a review on Facebook, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast delivery platform. Find out more about In the Telling at lizzylizzyliz.com. Subscribe to In The Telling Podcast on YouTube for bonus content. Theme music by Gordon Vitas. In The Telling is hosted and produced by me, Liz Christensen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>